chapter 5 this morning. Last week, I uh, too soon said I would finish chapter 5 and we'd move on to the next book. Uh, imagine this, I got long-winded and I it mercifully said, you know what, let's finish it next week. So Lord willing, this morning, if I don't get off on too many rabbit trails, uh, we will end up finishing 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 5, just this last week, we spoke, we studied, rather, um, the elders. Now, I want to point out to you in chapter 4, verse 19, he's just gotten done talking about suffering for doing the right thing. And so, if, if you're going to teach people to suffer for doing the right thing, you kind of need to give them some instruction on what is the right thing. Uh, there are some things that are obvious. It's the will of God that we are thankful in all circumstances. It's the will of God that we are conformed into the image of Christ, that we become more like Christ as we go through whatever this life brings us. Um, but in this particular case, he's talking to the church of God, and he's talking to these churches that are not like ours, but they're home churches kind of scattered around the area that he's addressed in chapter 1. And he says this, he says, I address the elders. He says, the elders who are among you, I exhort. So Peter uses his apostolic authority and he says, I exhort them, which that is a fancy word that means I urge them to action. I challenge them strongly. I charge them, if you will. He says, I charge them, I who am also a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And also, I love this, Peter makes himself on our level. I want you to notice this and not miss it. He says, and also I'm a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Peter was walking by faith. He had walked with Jesus, but he knew that his hope, his living hope, was in the resurrected Jesus who had died on, in his place. So Peter, though an amazing super saint in the Bible, really he was walking by faith like you and I. He had to exercise faith. He says, I am a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So he says to these elders, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Shepherding is servanthood. We always talk about servant leadership. And we put that word leadership. But Jesus said in the Gospels, he said multiple times, if anyone among you would be great, let him be a servant. And, and I don't know about you guys, but servanthood takes humility. And humility is not high-fived in our society. We want to take ours. We want to do what we get to do. We've got rights. And yet what Jesus said is, is if you want to really be great in the kingdom of God, you have to lay down your rights. You have to be willing to suffer for the sake of doing the right thing. And so in that case, he goes on to say, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. Not by compulsion or begrudgingly, but he says willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Jesus said, do as I do. As I do. He, he, he lived everything he called us to do as disciples. He was willing to do it himself. The king of the universe didn't say, do as I say, not as I do. He said, do as you've seen me do. Teach as you've heard me teach. And his disciples said the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Paul said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. 
So even his action is in his words. He was pointing to Christ. So, and when you, but being examples to the, excuse me, and when the chief shepherd appears, he says, verse 4, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now, Paul talks about this a little bit. He says, you guys compete, and Paul was big on sports. So, you know, if you're in athletics, you can understand a lot of the Paul's writings just due to the fact that you're either competitive or you like to watch sports that are competitive. And he said, you who are competitive, you who run these races, and when they ran, you know, they were running long distances, and he says, you compete and you strive and you, you sweat and you, you pour your life into this sport, and yet you are competing for a crown that fades They didn't get a trophy that you would stick in your your memorabilia box and have forever and eventually go, why am I carrying this and moving it from house to house? They had a laurel wreath that would be made of live flowers. And it was beautiful, probably costly. And they would take this wreath and they would lay it over the, the neck of someone who had just competed and won. And it represented months and years and some, for some of them their entire life training for this win. And yet, what happens to flowers? A couple of days later, they die. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord shall remain forever. So he says here in verse 4, the chief shepherd, when he appears the one that you work for as an elder, he says, you will receive the crown of glory that doesn't fade. He was contrasting to the crowns that they could earn in their society, the accolades, the the attaboys, the the certificates. All of those things are great, but they don't, down the road, you're like, I don't even remember what I did to earn that. But he says, this crown will not fade. It is an eternal crown. And I love this because in heaven, If you've got crowns, it's a good thing. It's not like, hey, look what I did. You're going to realize what it took to get that crown because at that point, you're just going to be happy to have something to give to Jesus. And you'll have to say, Lord, you did it all. So that being said, in verse 5, he transitions and says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves. Submit yourselves to your elders. Obey them. Follow them. As they follow Christ, follow them. He says, so he just, real quickly to those that are following elders in the church, he says, follow them. Submit yourself to them. You know, allow yourself to be led. Also not common in our society. We like to do our own thing. Yet he said, within the church, younger people should submit themselves to their elders. But then he goes on to say, yes, all of you be submissive, to one another and be clothed with humility. Clothe yourselves with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, if you were with us in James chapter 4, he's quoting Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, that says exactly this God resists the proud, but he gives unmerited favor to the humble. He resists. If you are prideful, if you are bent on following your own ways and you refuse to receive wisdom from those who are further along than you, if you refuse to receive wisdom from God himself, it says here, God's going to resist you. Now, this isn't like arm wrestling the strong guy in high school. He's going to resist you and you cannot win. He's going to break you. He doesn't care. He loves you too much to let you continue be prideful. 
And God breaks us down if we're willing to let him break us. But he'll break us down despite our willingness. God broke me. He's allowed circumstances that I can no longer handle to break me so that I can be better used. If God wants to use you, and I promise to you, each one of you in here, God wants to use you, he will break you. So that you, just a horse that's not been broken is dangerous. It's powerful. It's dangerous to the rider. It's dangerous to the implement it's pulling. It's dangerous. But once a horse has been broken, it's useful. And so here he says, be clothed with humility. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Well, if you turn to the left, just, just one book. The half-brother of Jesus, James. In chapter 4, verse 1, James writes, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire and pleasure that war in your members? Now he's talking to the church. He's not talking to people that are outside of faith. Saying within the church, where do wars come from? Wait a minute, there shouldn't be any wars in the church. But we live in reality, so there are. And if you've ever been in church for more than five minutes, and you've actually built relationships and not just tore out as soon as the doors closed or as soon as the service was over, you recognize that people are fallen and they get the wrong priorities. They get the wrong focus. They get the wrong perspective. We make church about me. You make church about you. It's our natural inclination to make everything revolve around us instead of around God. So he says, where do wars and strives come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? He says, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have simply because you haven't humbled yourself and asked. Asked your father. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss. You ask for the wrong things that you may spend it on your pleasure. And he calls them adulterers. He calls them adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is war with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But look at this. Here's the good news, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud. That's his grace. When God resists your plans that are against his will, it's his grace. He doesn't have to strive with us. He doesn't even have to give us a thought. But he does because he loves us. He fights with us. He fights against our plans. He always says no to things that will harm us. He's a good father. You ever ask God for something and you know he doesn't want you to have it and you still push forward for it anyway? I have. Caused me years of misery. And then he still didn't let me have it. And once I got it because I was going to get my way, I was miserable. And yet God was like, I don't want that for you because it's not ultimately good for you. And we do that for our kids, right? I hope. It's becoming less likely that you will. Statistically, parents don't tell their kids no very much. They want to be their friend. Your kids don't need any more friends. They need parents. And parents set up fences in the yard so their kids don't run out in the street, get run over, die. Spiritually, too, set boundaries. God does for us. And so 
Therefore, he says, submit to God, verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. First, submit yourself to God. Then you will be able to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and look at this. He will lift you up. He'll set things right. And so back in 1 Peter, we should be clothed with humility. Now, what does this look like? What does humility look like? Well, turn with me, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 5. Go past Psalms. Not quite to Samuel. If you get to Chronicles, go to the left again. I used to have the tabs, and I became really... I, if you have tabs, use them. I, I should have got one with tabs. This thing's not big enough for tabs. It takes up half the page. 2 Kings 5. There was a Gentile king by the name of Naaman, which, by the way, is a cool name. Lots of A's. Now, Naaman, chapter 5, verse 1 in 2 Kings, commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Now this was victory over Israelites, by the way. God gave victory to an, a Gentile king over his kids. Tell me that God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Sometimes God lets you be defeated to humble you. And he used Naaman, an ungodly man, a prideful man even, to judge his people, gave victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, I want to point out in verse 1, he was great and honorable man in the eyes of who? His master. Not the Lord, his master. He was a good general for his master. And so the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. She was a servant in the house of Naaman. Presumably, her family had been murdered by Naaman's people, by Naaman's guard, by his soldiers. And they took back one captive, this little girl. And she came back and she served in the house of Naaman. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were the prophet were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. Now, don't miss this. Consider, put yourself in this girl's shoes. She has been taken captive from her land. She is now a slave. She's a slave to Naaman, who is the general over the army that has destroyed her family. And she has compassion for, presumably, her enemy the general of the army that killed her family, she sees him and that he has leprosy, and she goes, you know, he could be healed. She wants to bless her master. Your boss has never sent an army to kill your family. You should want to be a blessing to him or her. I don't care how ungodly they are. We're just called to love our enemies. Not because we want to, but because Jesus loved us. We were his enemies. That said, 
she calls out and she says, you know, if he only met the prophet who's in Samaria, which is northern Israel. So Naaman went in and told his master, saying, thus and thus, said the girl who is from the land of Israel. That's like the Bible's version of yada, yada, yada. You know, yada, yada, yada. I need to go see this guy in Israel. And so he departed, excuse me, then the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he had the whole kingdom and the resources of the kingdom at his disposal. He, the king, because he respected and honored this general, allows him to do whatever he wants, but he's still submission to his master. So he departed and he took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothing, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you that you may heal him of leprosy. Thus say, you know, it's like you go to amazon.com and go, uh, healing please, click, I want two-day shipping. Like, it's like this. The king says it and he expects it to happen. And Naaman's just going to go pick it up, going to go pick up my leprosy healing. It, that's how life was for Naaman. Whatever he wanted, he could get. And now someone's told him what store to go to get the thing he desires. Seems to me Naaman could do anything for himself except one thing, heal himself. Now, leprosy is no joke. Leprosy is a, a skin disease that slowly rots you away. It's like rust to a car. A car's great until it starts rusting. And you can't stop the rust, though. We can do that with the cars. We can sand them down, replace a piece. Our bodies aren't like that. You can replace some pieces, but leprosy is a disease that's so entrenched in your body that slowly you lose feeling in your, in your nerves. And then you start doing things that you've always done, and you don't feel when you cut yourself. You don't feel when you stub your toe. Your bones become brittle. And slowly by slowly, it's like living hell. You're, you're your body parts are falling off and yet you're still alive and you start to look like the disease you carry. That's what sin does to us, by the way. It's the same thing. Sin doesn't necessarily show itself until we slowly destroy ourselves with it. It promises life and yet it destroys our bodies. But here he is with this disease that will kill him. It's not if, it's when. He cannot heal himself and so he goes looking for this fix Verse 7, it says it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and he said, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how this king, he seeks a quarrel with me. He's coming to me for something I can't give him. He's really just trying to start war. He, he's a little bit paranoid. He's a little bit scared. He's got something asked of him that he can't do, and he's afraid that this king's going to wipe out his country. So verse 8, it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Have you forgotten about the God we serve who made this nation exist in the first place? Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. A prophet is a mouthpiece of God, someone who represents God. Then Naaman went with his horses and his chariot 
he stood at the door of Elisha's house, and Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. Like, awesome. I wrote about this in the New Testament. There were people who were blind, and they said, go wash this mud that I spit and put on your eye off in the pool of Siloam, and then you'll see again. Now, those folks, I didn't see them go, I ain't washing this off. I don't care. I'm not doing that. That's filthy. See, what we don't know, we think about Jesus being baptized in the Jordan, we think a current river. It's clear, blue pools, it's cold all year round. Like, this is the best thing ever. I'm going to go take a bath seven times. Sounds great. Let's go to the river. Except the Jordan River is nasty. It is not current river. It is muddy. It is murky. It's not nice. And so he's going, I'm not washing in that river. We got way more clear rivers in our country. And so he, in his pride, says, I'm not doing it. I ain't going to do it. But Naaman said, furious, and became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, you will surely come out to me. He's mad that Elisha didn't even come to the door. Don't you know who I am? Isn't that funny how we act when we've been told there's a, there's, we, we need to humble ourselves. God says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we go, show me in a dream. Present yourself to a way that I think is acceptable. God doesn't do things the way we want him to. He doesn't serve us. He loves us and he did serve us, but he presents himself simply and humbly in his word and he provides his Holy Spirit to convict us. But guess what? He doesn't have to do what you want him to. And so he turned and he went away in a rage. So in verse 14, he went down and, excuse me, I skipped a big part. Verse 12, he says, Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. And his servants came near, spoke to him, said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? So Naaman humbles himself. He goes down, and he dips seven times in the Jordan. And according to the saying of the man of God, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a child, and he was clean. He returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and he came and he stood before him. He said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. But now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. And Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman finds healing. Excuse me. So that said, we go back to 1 Peter chapter 5, where it says there that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He says in verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you, in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now, I was reading the New Living Translation of this, verse 7. He says uh, in verse 7, casting all your worry upon him, for he cares about you. Naaman had a worry, right? 
He had a care. He had something that hindered him from being all that he could be. And so he had to humble himself in order to receive this grace, this healing. Now, if you want to read another story about uh, humility, Matthew chapter 15, there's a Gentile woman. She's of Canaanite descent. She comes to Jesus and she says, My daughter is demon-possessed. Will you please heal my daughter? And Jesus says to her, I've only come for the children of Israel. I can't give uh, the, the bread that I've come to give to the dogs. He calls her a dog. Now, it's not what you think. He's referring to her what they would call them in that day. And have you ever been called something, some sort of slang, and it kind of enrages you inside? But what I notice in Matthew chapter 15 is this Gentile woman who approaches Jesus and he humbles her and says, I didn't come to, to, to give to you the bread. I came to give the Jewish people the bread. And what she says is very humbling. She says, yes, but don't even the dogs get the crumbs that the children drop? And so she humbles herself and says, I, I recognize that I don't deserve to be blessed, but will you at least give me the crumbs? Now, I was meditating on that this week, and the, the crazy part is, if the crumbs can cast out demons, imagine what the bread of life can be. We've been given the whole loaf. We've been given Jesus. He is the bread of life. And so uh, he's offered us and given us so much more. I want to go one more place before we finish up the verses. I want to go to uh, Luke chapter 18. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There we go. Luke chapter 18, verse 10. Here's the deal. We don't always put ourselves in the place of um, Naaman. Uh, we, we sometimes look at ourselves like Elisha. Um, we don't always put ourselves in the place of this woman who was called a dog. Uh, we, we don't always put ourselves in the proper place in the story. But in Luke chapter 18, in verse 10, verse 9 really, Jesus was speaking. Verse 9, he says, Also he, who spoke, he spoke this parable for some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Here's the, here's the problem. We, we in the church oftentimes go, look, I'm righteous now. Those people need to get their act together. And this is what Jesus said. It says there, and Luke wrote it down this way, Jesus spoke a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others who were not in their eyes righteous. Verse 10, he says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and he prayed thus with himself. I think sometimes when we think we're righteous, we're actually praying with ourselves, not to God. It says there, he prayed thus with himself. Here's his prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. And I'm even better than this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he instead beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. 
Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, made just as if he had never sinned. He had repented rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I lost my note here, but there's one more. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. This is a well-known passage. This is probably a passage that's caused many Christians to rededicate their lives to the Lord. But I, I think it's important. I heard this the other night. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name? done many wonders in your name? He says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And the question that this Bible teacher asked was, who gets to heaven, stands in front of Jesus, and says, look at all the stuff I did. (laughs) Who gets there and says that? Now, maybe some of you are like, well, I wouldn't say that. But I've heard many Christians, when I've asked them, do you know Jesus, say, well, I go to church. I pray every day. I spend time with Jesus in the woods, whatever, all this stuff. You know, I've led Bible studies, or I've prayed with people, or I've shared my faith. But the point is, is that that's not humility. That's going, look what I did. And the life of a Christian ought to be, look what God did. Look what God did in my life despite me. They have proper perspective. So, that being said, let's finish up chapter 5. He says, Be sober. Be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. Now, he's already said, Humble yourself, submit to God, and then resist the devil. But in verse 9, he says, Resist him. Be steadfast in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, after you've suffered a while, may God, by his grace, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I could do a whole message on each one of those words, but God's desire in your life is to perfect you, and he will purify your life if you let him. He will establish your feet upon him. He will strengthen you to do the things he's called you to do, and he will settle your heart. James talks about the double-minded man. Are you settled in your heart? Are you settled or are you uneasy all the time? Is God calling you to do things and you, you want to do it, but everything that you've done in your life, everything you've centered your life around makes it very difficult to do those things? Let him settle you. Let him purify you. Let him strengthen you. Let him change your desires. Ask him to. But it takes sobriety and vigilance. Peter is writing this. Peter denied the Lord. Peter was told by Jesus this very thing. 
Satan desires to sift you like wheat. Satan desires to trouble you, Peter, on the night of his betrayal. He said that to him. What did Peter say? No way, man. I'm going to be with you all the way to prison. Okay, that sounds great, but what happened? Peter didn't believe what Jesus said about him. And so when he was tried, he denied Christ even to the point where he was cursing, sending up curses. I don't even know this man. That's what he said. And yet what Jesus told him when he said, Satan desires to sift you like wheat, he says, yet I have prayed for you. And when it all comes to pass, I will restore you. Do you believe what Jesus has said about you? Do you believe that Satan desires to sift you like wheat? Do you believe that you have an adversary who longs to destroy you? He wants to put things in your life. He wants to whisper things in your mind that will distract you from the things that actually matter. Your lives are about to get chaotic, teachers. What really matters? I would submit to you, it's the people that God's placed in your classroom. It's the teachers that he's placed in your life. All of us have chaotic jobs, whether they're seasonal or not. My job is constantly chaotic. There are always things being thrown at me, and I have to remember that I'm there because there are souls there that need to know Jesus. And how I respond to chaos and calamity and distractions and my own desires to get more stuff or be cool or whatever, those things are distractions from what God's trying to do, which is redeem souls. So my question for you is, are you like Peter going, I'll never deny you, Lord, I'm good. Or are you going, I'm probably going to do what you said, um, but I trust you to perfect. I trust you to establish me. I trust you to strengthen me. That's one of the things that Jesus told Peter in John chapter 21, where he restored him. He said, establish my people, feed my sheep, tend to my flock, settle them. They're going to be distracted. They're going to be worried. They're going to be anxious. He says to him, be glory in the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So then he closes with a note, personal note. He says, by Silvanus, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, and he, he speaks of writing with Timothy and Silas. Uh, so this is, many believe, Silvanus or Silas from First and Second Thessalonians. He says, Our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly. So Peter didn't write this, Silvanus did. I'm guessing he had horrible handwriting because many believe that actually Mark was written by Mark, but he was, he was writing down what Peter told him about what he saw as far as the life of Jesus. And then, um, so he says, By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So he's He's speaking to them. He says, this letter isn't just from me. It's from the church that supports me. But then he also says, um, this is the true grace of God in which you stand. So the grace of God is something that has been poured out through Jesus for salvation. But the same grace that saves us, the unmerited favor, Jesus giving his life for us, is also the same grace in which we must continue to stand daily. It takes grace to be saved, but it also takes grace to live. 
to live for God, for his purposes, takes grace. And so I want to just recount real quick, I promise. He always says that. This grace is what has given us our heavenly inheritance, chapter 1. He tells us all we've been given in Christ. It's grace. It's a free gift. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. Nothing about you makes you lovable. Maybe I'm the only one that's ever told you that. I'm telling you that because that's the truth from the Bible. Same with me. I'm not lovable, but Christ loved me. He first loved me, therefore I love others. It's the same grace that gives us the ability to live for a hope that we haven't seen yet. That takes grace. It takes grace to receive the word and to respond to it in humility and let it instruct my life and have influence. Chapter 1 It takes grace to recognize Jesus and let him be the chief cornerstone. It takes grace to submit to the masters that God's placed over us, our bosses. It takes grace to submit to our spouses. It can't be done through selfishness and warring. It takes grace to recognize that we've been called to be a blessing to everyone in our lives, not just those that we like. It takes grace to suffer for doing the right thing. It takes grace to serve in every capacity God's given us for God's glory and not to take the glory for ourselves. And it takes grace to be in the church of God and to love one another even when we live in a small town and everybody's heard rumors for years. That takes grace. It takes humility. And it takes grace to humble ourselves, to be sober, to be daily dependent upon God to perfect, to establish, and to strengthen us. We are not good enough to make ourselves worthy or to do any good thing for God. We have to abide in Him. And everything that's in Disney, everything that's on the book of face, everything that your friends that have good intentions in your lives are going to tell you, you need to make yourself stronger. You need to take care of yourself better. You need to rely upon your own strength. You need to get out there and do it. But here's the gospel. You can't do it. And if you can do it, it's not the work of God. You need him to be able to do it in you and through you. And by his grace, guess what? He will. But we have to be willing to let him. And my question is, are you willing Jesus said, whosoever will may come. That that word will is in there. Whoever is willing to let me may come. So, Father, thank you for Peter. Thank you for Peter 